This is the cacophony inside Nick Coleman's head. He's an English music journalist and critic. Last August, he lost all hearing in his right ear due to a little understood condition known as sudden neurosensory hearing loss. It means that he can only hear in mono and, due to an array of tinnitus sounds in his head, can never again experience music as he used to. It is actually impossible for me to put into words how I feel about the loss of music. It's literally impossible because the function that music performed for me was a sort of non-verbal function. It was to do with how I feel in the world. The feeling of loss and grief that I feel over music is actually only painful in the experience of music. It's when I attempt to listen to music and I'm thwarted in the effort to hear music that I feel almost overwhelmed with something that's almost like nausea. sense of being so upset that you want to be sick. On the morning it happened, it all started innocently with a cup of tea. That morning I, I went to make a cup of tea, feeling a bit dozy, not really myself. Made the tea, brought it back upstairs again, as I went up the stairs feeling less good and less good about the world. Gave my wife a cup of tea, plunked my own cup of tea on the bedside table, went to lie down, and as I went, my ear went... <laughs> I made to sit up to say to my wife, Jesus Christ, I've gone deaf, and effectively kept on going. <laughs> I went past the point of perpendicularity and, and sort of flumped onto the bed. At which point I felt extremely worried, uh, as you would, because I was also feeling very sick. I had absolutely no hearing in one ear, which was betokened by the strange sound like the air escaping from a pressurised valve, and absolutely no sense of balance at all. I couldn't move. If I moved a muscle, literally moved a muscle, I felt sick. If I moved sufficient muscles to get me into an upright position or to roll, I actually threw up. Emerged from hospital four days later with increasing racket in my head. And went to bed for two months. And all the while rejoicing in the cacophony, the orchestral cacophony of sounds which developed very rapidly inside my head. The new sound in Nick's head is called reactive tinnitus. It's a reaction to the sound, and even the silence his good ear hears. The bass sound that is always present is the central heating noise. If you were to write down, it's spelled P-F-F-F-F-F. That is always there. What happens if I go into a place where there's a lot of hubbub um, is a tube train smashing through an underground station. 
there is another level of sound that's underneath the sound. I can only describe it as the sound of, of a very, very small monkey playing a very, very small organ. I began to hear a drowning choir and I would hear them as if I was hearing them through water. There was a kind of wetness to the sound that was rather enjoyable and even a kind of right at the edges of the notes, a kind of hint of gurgle. You can get something that's approaching a sort of sound, like the kind of sound that a cat makes when it's angry. I wanted to talk to Nick Coleman because he feels about the spell cast by music, as I do about books and reading. For him, music is a building you enter. And I have a very clear sense of standing inside the building of music, the construct of music. As a kid, singing in choirs and playing my trombone. So I suspect that I've possibly brought that mentation of what music can be to bear on the way I listened to music. And as soon as I was listening discreetly, quietly, or loudly, on my own, in my own space, I guess that I carried over this sense of music being a building that you inhabited, and that indeed you contain within yourself as a vessel, as a receptacle for other, other things, whatever those things might be. There are things that happen to you in your growing up as well which will accentuate that. When I used to smoke dope, that helps no end with the architectural aspect of music and it really does create this sort of sense of absolute and real space. But my sense of it being architectural certainly predates dope smoking and all of that. It goes all the way back to standing inside music in, in a church, I think. I'm a reasonably happy sort of chap. I want to get my buildings back. I want to be able to hear music. I want to be able to do things. I want to be able to experience the world in a way that isn't contaminated. That's, in some ways, the thing that makes me angriest, is the contamination of it. It feels dirty. It's dirtying up my life. It dirties up the way I feel about the world. And I don't want the world to feel like a place that's contaminating me. Nick wanted to test how much the hearing loss in one ear would affect his ability to engage with one of his favourite state occasions. The Cenotaph experience is quite boring and I'm very surprised at myself for having been sort of so compelled by it over the years. But what happened was that after I fell deaf and began to think about what on earth this might mean because I couldn't hear music in the way that I used to be able to hear music anymore and I was looking for different ways to test this feeling I took myself downstairs from my bed to watch the Cenotaph ritual on television on the Sunday nearest November the 11th, Armistice Day. He found that emotion had a part to play. There I was, sitting on my sofa, and I think I was very, very frightened that they would 
kick off into this sequence of extraordinary pieces of music and that I wouldn't feel anything. That's what I was most frightened of. It was one of the most frightening moments of my recent life, which sounds absurd, but is in fact true. And the guy who was doing the narration, David Dimbleby, said, and, and now, now, from Elgar's Enigma, Enigma variations. variations, and before he'd even said the word Nimrod, Nimrod before a guardsman had lifted a trombone to his lips, um, I was off. And I was I was shuddering and trickling before the music had even started, um, which which I think was a lot to do with uh, uh, not wanting to go through the experience of sitting and witnessing this thing and not feeling. I was very very frightened of of not having the experience properly, so my system kicked in and showed me the way without without recourse to the music itself. But what was extraordinary about the experience was that as I sat there, shuddering and trickling and watching the guardsmen, I suddenly began to feel the music, um, feel the emotion in a way that I thought was lost to me. I could, I could actually hear the music better. In other words, the, mute, the emotion of the situation had stimulated me. The Cenotaph experience had wrecked its magic on Nick Coleman. But could the song remain the same? The newly remastered Led Zeppelin film do likewise. Is this called The Song Remains the Same? He went to the cinema to find out. They were made a big deal out of the fact they had a sensational sound system to play it back on, which they duly did at blistering volume. And it made no sense at all. <laughs> it actually hurt. This music that I knew extremely well might just as well have been the sound of a tube train smashing through a station. Certain areas of the frequency range, in particular the guitar, which anyone who knows Led Zeppelin knows, is quite an important area of the sound picture, was completely detuned. The kick drum was out of phase. I couldn't pitch the bass line at all. It was chaotic, and it was also painful. The auditory cortex over my right ear. I had the impression that it was about to catch fire. It felt hot. The right-hand side of my head felt hot, and it pulsated, and it felt as if it was going to either catch fire or explode. But while the unbidden sounds interfere with Coleman's ability to process music as he used to, there are still the pleasure of earworms. I have two absolutely perpetual ones that I catch myself playing back in my head when I'm doing nothing, when I'm standing at a bus stop or getting the kids tea. One of them is, is, is the beautiful balanced riff from Led Zeppelin's Moby Dick, which doesn't last very long um, and is essentially just a blues lick. And there's also the, the introduction to the Rolling Stones' Tumbling Dice, um, which makes time elastic. Uh, I've never understood quite how Keith Richard played it. I'm not sure that Keith Richards understands how he played it. I don't think he devised it. I think it just happened one day. And it's, it's, it's the opposite of Moby Dick. If Moby Dick is, is a beautiful piece of structure, um, the intro, the, the slippery, slidey intro to Tumbling Dice is, is, a, is a kind of organic mess that somehow makes sense. And I get that. And, and 
as with Moby Dick, it's probably five, ten seconds worth of music and it will play on a loop absolutely endlessly in my head. It's exquisitely beautiful and, and, and this is obviously something to do with why music is so important to me. It defies my easy comprehension. But are the remembered pleasures of music enough? The remembered pleasures of music are totally sustaining. They've sustained me all through my life, whether I can hear music newly or not. I can play things back to myself and, and it tells me good things. And it doesn't change either. Uh, I still think and feel the same things when I hear in my head the music that's important. Part of what makes me want to not give up on music and to keep trying to find new ways to get stuff from music is a gesture of defiance. I'm not ready to go just yet, thank you very much. I'm certainly not happy to be reminded on a daily basis, as I am, that uh, we are frail and made of fragile stuff. I really don't want to slip into that good night without making a racket about it. This is The Curious Ear, singular. I'm Yvonne Nolan. <laughs>